a blink of an eye, one of them came back with a gun and pointed it right at me and said a few choice words. I began to wrestle with what's going on in their personal lives that made them not value me as a pregnant person or as just a person who was out and about minding her own business. Yeah, a human being. Yeah, a human being. Mm-hmm. And how, how have we gotten so far that we are taking and stripping humans of their joy? That's really what put me on this incredible path of leaning into fear and leaning into something bigger taking place. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. We've been working through a number of episodes on the basics of your journey to impact. Now we get the privilege of hearing from someone who has been on that journey for a while. Lauren Young has worked with the Kimmons Wilson Family Foundation and various organizations that minister to troubled youth. She also started Sweet La La's Bakery, which she has used to help teach baking and job skills to young people going through an intervention program. You'll get to hear what inspired her, what drives her, and hopefully you'll walk away encouraged as you take that next step, or perhaps your first step on your impact journey. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Well, I'm thrilled to have my good friend Lauren Young with us today. Lauren, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. So Lauren and I grew up in Memphis, but we didn't really meet until we both joined the board of directors for the Christian Community Foundation, way back in the day when it was Hope Foundation. And Lauren was also very instrumental in many of the ideas and journey to impact and was super gracious to read the drafts and give me her feedback. But the very first time I met Lauren at our very first board meeting, two things struck me immediately. Number one, she spoke her mind and let the chips fall where they may. Now, she was very gracious about it, but she never backed down. And the other thing was that she was always smiling and gracious. And those two things struck me. We've been fast friends ever since uh, because of our shared passion for impact and philanthropy in our city. We both uh, really love Memphis, been here a really long time, and want to see her grow. Um I'm going to take a few seconds to give you Lauren's bio, and then we're going to dive right in because I want to give her as much time as possible today. But she got her undergrad degree in early childhood education at Vanderbilt University. She also got a master's in special education from Vanderbilt. Uh, She's managed the Kimmons Wilson Family Foundation for 12 years, along, um, I guess, at the same time, working extensively in nonprofits. I guess they go uh, hand in glove here in the city of Memphis. But the past several years, she's combined her love for helping people with her love for baking and has created Sweet Lala's Bakery, a sustainable impact business here in Memphis and shameless promotion. You can go to sweetlalas.com. It's better if you actually go to Sweet Lala's and Regalia. <laughs> um, I've never put anything that didn't taste amazing in my mouth while I'm in there. Unfortunately, it's right across the street from my office. So I find myself having meetings over there. And did I just hear a rumor that there is maybe a pimento cheese and bacon biscuit coming? Yes, from scratch. We do our biscuits, but we combined it with the new smoked pimento cheese, and we're real excited oh, about that Oh, my goodness. One. So we don't just do sugar stuff. We actually do the whole shebang. <laughs> so, I, you know, Lauren, I tell people this about y'all's sweet stuff. It's pretty easy, it seems, these days to make pretty cookies. Not everybody gets delicious and pretty. Right. Y'all right. been able to pull that off. And also um, for the COVID 
I forgot about this till we we're talking. For during COVID, uh, one of our kids had a birthday and wanted a toilet paper. Cake. It was awesome. So you, you guys, you guys yeah. made it. That was amazing. We loved your creativity, and then our team <laughs> knocked it out of the park with that one. It was it was almost scarily Real. perfect. Yeah, until <laughs> <laughs> you cut into it, and then we couldn't stop eating it. Absolutely. But anyway, Sweet Lala's is an impact business, and Lauren's going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, she's married to her high school sweetheart, Tommy Young. She's got three beautiful children, Stuart, Wilson, and Parker. Did I miss anything? No, we That's have three right. dogs. Three that dogs, would be right? The other part of the family—they're super important. We love <laughs> and, those little furry. And are animals. they getting more like like children now that the kids are getting older? Yes, the dogs are more. <laughs> yes, like... they've taken over the couch, which is <laughs> was supposed to have been a big no, but now it's happening. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, when they're the last, right. the last of the kids, they can get away That's with murder. That's right. That's awesome. So we're gonna just dive right in. You've got, I think, an amazing story. Um, that we can go a bunch of different directions, right? When I was thinking about, um your story, obviously there's the philanthropic, the impact planning uh, direction journey, but your love for the city of Memphis with all of our checkered past and our nuanced history is a shared connection that you and I have. You've got your special education background, the Holiday Inn connection, which is really important to Memphis when you think about our history and kind of what you and I have talked about, the Memphis self-esteem problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I guess let's just start with Sweet Lala's and see where it goes. Tell us how that happened, how it came into being. Yeah, I think as you talked about our shared love for this city, I was raised in the city. My grandfather is Kimmins Wilson, the founder of Holiday Inn. So um, it's an important part of my story to be recognizing my family and where I come from. I was lucky to be a part of a very large family and a very uh, loving family. So they brought us into a fold where Sunday night suppers were truly every Sunday night. So if you could be mm-hmm. there, um, no one wanted to miss it so much so that my first date with my husband was at my grandfather's <laughs> birthday party. Uh, and I walked him in the door like anybody would on a first date, right? To meet all 70 so people. Um, it just was that I I was raised in that and I didn't know anything differently. And my grandmother was all about serving food. That was her gift to all of us. And my parents gave me free reign of the kitchen. So I, I quickly at a young age learned that food was a way to connect people. And I really believed when you make a cookie and which is what I always did, Nestle Toll House and mostly ate the dough. But when I would, um, get as far as baking it, uh, I, I realized that people loved that when you brought that to a party or you brought that to a spend the night and it was an instant game changer in relationship and conversation people relax a little bit around food people um, tell more stories around the table Mm -hmm. and so the journey to create a bakery really began in those early years of my family coming together around a table um, mostly for dinner and for conversations and celebrations and then fast forwarding as I became a teenager and on into college I worked at a bakery and started to see how fun it was when customers you got to know them by name um, I worked the cash register which still today scares me to death having to count change backwards I laugh for all the degrees I got I still don't right. like to count backwards um, but I found that the customers usually got to know you and wanted to know a little bit more about you and you could know them by name you knew their order and people have habits around food and you get to know people in a way that's super unique and different so people will walk in and out of your life through school or through um, maybe neighborhoods but food just tells a little bit of a different story and as I began to think about what uh, recipes do and how you create food my spiritual side starts to kick in Uh 
And I really began to think about what does um, a lump of dough do in your life? And what does you know, dough become? It, you get to become something different. And you become um, parceled out in a way that you're sharing life in a very significant way. So there's so many angles. I'm not sure which right. the next step is. But that's part of how the journey to the bakery came was my love for food, my experience in working in a bakery, getting to understand the dynamics between people um, and relationships on a work level and family becomes the people you work with too. So Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to be a part of a big family, but my family, um, and the, the way other people think about family is very different. And some people have not had that same journey. So my work that brought me to Memphis, when we moved back from Nashville after school, I worked for youth villages and they, want to restore families who've had broken moments. And I got to be a counselor in those moments with certain families. And I realized that not everybody had the most special gift of family that I got to grow up with. It was a real game changer for me personally to see that families who were really in crisis still loved each other, still wanted their families to be successful, but they were missing pieces and links to that success. And I started to realize that those families who maybe were broken beyond repair um, there was still another hope for some of these kids. You right. you could have a new family, and mm-hmm. especially in a spiritual space, you could start to think about how you're created in your faith, and you can create family wherever you are. And so even if your family is not someone who supported you along your journey, yeah, that doesn't have to be your end story. You can kind of create a new story with a new family. When you think that's interesting that you would say that about family and how important it is, do you was was youth villages when it really became stark sort of that blessing of a family that maybe at some point you know as kids we're like oh my family is just irritating right right and, but you also know there's security there yeah um but but when was it like this stark moment where you're like wow not everybody else has this family or did it kind of gradually happen does that make well, sense well there were a couple of events that happened in my life where I think you understand the value of family. So for the youth villages moments, I I went into homes thinking I had something to offer. You know, I was hired to be a counselor. We were going to solve some problems, create a fit circle. They do this amazing approach called multi-systemic therapy. Mm-hmm. You, know, you feel all educational. Um, and what I had in my most memorable relationship with one of the families, um, Terry and her children, Terry had just gotten out of rehab and had lost her children because of some terrible choices she had made in her life and put them through. And I was there to help restore that relationship. So here I was, uh, 25 years old, thinking I was going to take on the world and make all these changes. And um, Terry and I became really good friends and her children were in my life for a very long time before she passed away. But I remember her saying to me that the most memorable thing that made us connect was the fact that I was the first person that had come into her home and sat on her sofa. Wow. And every other person in her life who had been an, a, basically hired to work on her family story had not engaged her in a way that felt she was going to be heard or known. And that was a big pivotal moment for me that someone, something that I did really naively, it was something I just didn't think differently about. I just, you know, I knew you go, go into people's homes and sit down and enjoy a cup of coffee. Um, that's how I was raised, but her home had been riddled with a lot of different things. And that was something that she took note of that I not didn't just stand in the doorway and lecture right. that we were really there. 
to try to help her get her life on track. And I'm very proud about that particular family because I was only in her life um, as a youth villages worker for less than nine months because I went on to have my firstborn. But she was in my life up until her um, passing. Uh, she died with my, um, it was probably 11 years later when my son was born, um, a third son. So we had a very long story together in a long journey, but it was with mutual respect to try to help her get her life back on track. So that to me was probably the most pivotal in understanding that not every family is the same and how you think about family might feel very different because of what I learned through Youth Village's uh, crisis moments. It's it's interesting to me that maybe we both stumbled into it, but going into her home and sitting and being with her as opposed to lecturing or Mm -hmm. coming in as sort of this knight in shining armor. Right. But I learned really quickly in Ethiopia that if you want to if you want to find out how to help people, you ought to listen to the people you're trying to help. And uh, I've noticed that doesn't always happen. What what you sort of stumbled into is a huge right. gift. Yeah. And I'm guessing probably shapes how you help people to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I think... God wired me to be a person to connect. So I certainly know that my journey is to want to hear, not necessarily want to talk, mm-hmm. uh, but it, you learn so much. And I think I did live a good portion of my life thinking I had so much to offer. I remember getting my yeah. degree, thinking I got to use this to um, go make the changes in the world. But I realized that if you actually sit back and not put too many goals in this space, they start to come to you and people start to pay attention. If you are going to speak, you hopefully are speaking at the right time um, in the right moments Mm -hmm. because you've taken in a lot too. So listening is a huge part of the journey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can see where in that regard, listening is as big a part of your credibility as as what you say. Right. Um, one of the challenges with the work that you've done is there's a lot of loss. Mm-hmm. And so when you look back over these years and years, decades now, yeah, sad, that you've been <laughs> doing true. this, yeah, um, there's Terry, right? You have yeah, a, 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 a loved friend that has passed away. But and also your work with Jif, um, you had to deal with some violent crime. Right. And I know it's been recent that some of the kids that you know have lost their life mm-hmm. um, lives. Talk about how you deal with that and how that's driven you on um, sure. to reach impact. Yeah, I think it's, a, again, a journey as you have to wrestle with the truth of pain, uh, the truth of loss. Um, I'm really proud. One of the special gifts that our family made when we, um, when I was working in the philanthropy space on behalf of my grandparents at the Kimmons Wilson Family Foundation, one of the early gifts they gave was to the Grief Center, the Kimmons Wilson Center for Good Grief. And I remember the year they made that gift, it felt like a very... Um, large gift that didn't make sense to me. I kept thinking, wow, that they must be contemplating their dying because they're all mm-hmm. in their older <laughs> years. And I don't want to call anyone out, but they were all, you know, in their prime and um, had had their children grown and raised and were experiencing grandchildren. So I thought, well, that makes sense for them to make a gift like that. And I had no idea the impact it would have in my space to start to think about grief, not just in a physical death, but in these emotional losses. And I think um, as you journey into philanthropy or into nonprofit work or into um, impoverished communities, it's not so much that 
poverty is taking over. It's just the loss of innocence that Mm -hmm. takes over in some children's lives, or it's the loss of safety. The simple acts that I now realize took for granted. I went to sleep. My room was comfortable. I had, you know, water and a shower to, you know, rise and shine every morning to. And as you, you walk life with people, you realize those simple things that are happening in our own town are not happening everywhere in Memphis. And I think there were some eye-opening moments for me that started to think about loss. And in my personal experience, you and I have shared this, um, and you were sweet to write about that in your book about what propelled the start of the bakery. Um, I was pregnant with my firstborn and three kids came by was, we were helping Terry with her groceries and they, uh, three boys came by and we kind of made pleasantries, hellos. And then I didn't think much about it, but in a blink of an eye, one of them came back with a gun and pointed it right at me and said a few choice words. And again, you think about loss. For me, that particular day was a loss of innocence, of my safety. And I wrestled for years and, you know, quite admittedly still do at times, um, thanks to post-traumatic stress syndrome. But I think it's important to talk about the mental health piece. Mm -hmm. Um, my tiny little world was shaken in that moment. And at the time I was also carrying my firstborn who's now 18. So you have a lot of these moments about what would have happened if the gun had gone off. Um, if I'd lost the baby, if I had died, my husband was out of town, all these storylines start to make in your head. And so for me, that's really where counseling kicked in was I needed to understand the loss of innocence that I felt around having the world go my way. Um, and then the biblical part of that, that you're not guaranteed a carefree life. So the suffering that I went through led me to work. Like, what do I need to do with this wrestling of fear and anxiety? I really couldn't live in it very long because it was taking over lots of things. Um, I felt, you know, don't want to eat. You have all these other physical implications of pain and loss. And I think it's important um, for every person out there that might be struggling is to go get help and the right help. I mean, my parents could be my support. My husband was a wonderful support. But from a clinical side, you need a little bit more support if you're struggling around those things. And so for me, I realized that I needed some support. So I was lucky enough to go into counseling and start to wrestle with my faith around, did God make that happen? Was Mm, this something that, you know, he caused to make me change my life or change, you know, my story and come full circle, you realize that we are part of a sinful world and we are part of a world that's broken. And when we pick up the pieces of our brokenness, there is healing and there can be healing. So there's a reason to go on. And when I think about the loss that I experienced, as I started to think about the families that I worked with, how much relative deeper loss that they had already experienced. So mine felt small, but I was lucky enough in counseling for my counselor to say, but it's the biggest thing that's happened to you. So trying to own your space and your moment was really important. And I think that's important for everyone. But then as we started to look at what happened in my particular situation for I, I knew three boys were out of school and three of them were coming to my car because the police found it later and they had taken a do- joy ride in it. Um, I began to wrestle with what's going on in their personal lives that made them not value 
me as a pregnant person or as just a person who was out and about minding her own business. Yeah, a human being. Yeah, a human being. Mm-hmm. And how, how have we gotten so far that we are taking and stripping humans of their joy in small ways or in big ways? And so that's really what put me on this incredible path of leaning into fear and leaning into something bigger taking place. And I really feel like God brought me into that work of JIF, the um, Juvenile Intervention and Faith-Based Follow-Up. They are the leading provider of juvenile reentry services. And so part of what I wanted to do originally was just to get connected to kids who I believed had been in court. And that's what um, JIF was about, was working with kids coming out of the court system and try to get their life on track. And I really planned to do it from a distance. I had not planned sure. to get too, too much closer. I still dealt with PTSD. Let me ask you this real quick, Lauren. Was that kind of strategic? You knew you needed to sort of lean into maybe the world that had caused your pain, or did it kind of happen? People asked you and you, you fell into it. I think it was probably more of a leaning in. Um, There was a constant restlessness that Mm -hmm. I can remember feeling around my fear and anxiety. And I just couldn't put my finger on it, but just to pretend it wasn't there was not helping. Um, The circles that I ran in, we obviously threw birthday parties for our babies at the time. And I felt this um, just sadness in me that it couldn't get rid of the feeling. What were those boys doing? Where are they now? What was going on in their lives? There was just like an echo, I think, that kind of happens after an event and you replay it in your head. Mm, What what would have I said differently and how could I have handled it differently or did I bring this on myself? And so you wrestle in all different ways. But I do think that for me, there was I was a part of my church, Second Baptist, and I was um, working in the college ministry and teaching Sunday school. And I kept thinking there's got to be something for these kids who have not experienced family in a way that I was experiencing family in the support system of coming out of a really significant um, moment and what was happening with these boys that they were not creating a value system that they valued similar things that human beings do for each other and creating community instead of rattling community. How do you, you know, help community? And so there it, you know, I was working for the Family Foundation, and this organization approached the foundation for funding. They were looking to come into the building where they are now downtown, and it just sat heavy on me. I remember I've never been on a board at that time in my life. I didn't really know what it was to mean to be a board member. So if you think I was 20, now six years old, and asked to join the board of JIF. and I didn't really know what that Yeah, so I have no idea what that meant and spent, you know, probably the better – I know over a decade, it's probably 15, um, 15 years I spent really in the leadership spaces of Jeff because I believe that these kids that I had intersected with were likely a part of a system that it either found them or they had not been found yet, but they were going down a path of spending the rest of their life in jail. And I just didn't believe that that's their best story. And I think for me, it was about learning that there are programs that work and my plan had been to fundraise from the top, you know, be, you know, right. we'll, we'll help you kids get back on track and we'll raise the money. But you get in there and you start to hear a little bit more and it starts to weigh a little heavy on you that money's not enough. You know, kids need relationship and kids need to believe in the adults that are around them mm-hmm. and kids needed new families. I really, I mean, they had some great family members, but their idea of family was, hey, you owe me something or you got to do this for me. 
because otherwise I'm not going to be able to keep my lights on. And there was just a weird power struggle when you hear some of the individual stories around some of these young kids being adults real fast. And I think that the program Jeff provided as I got to know the program in and out, the, the support that the counselors who were hired counselors through the Jeff program to do that work with these young men at the time they were only working with men they were telling the same stories. These counselors had been in the streets. They had lived the same story that some of these young men were already going through. And so they had earned the right to be heard as their counselor. And they needed more funds to do more work with counselors. And so that's where I was able to help leverage some of the dollars. But also, we kept leaving board meetings going, the kids need jobs. I mean, that's the bottom line. You graduate in four months from a wonderful program what next? And it's not like you have a degree from a school at this point. You've just said, good job. You've done the right thing for the last four months, but you got to have something to go on to. And that's really where, I mean, again, a huge leaning in, there was just something weighing heavy on my shoulders um, about doing more in the job arena. And um, kind of the sidebar had been when we came back to Memphis and I was pregnant, I started baking cookies for all my friends and family because that was my therapy. And certainly after my car was stolen, it felt real good to bake at night, especially right. if Tommy was traveling. I used that as my way and escape just to literally count the hours till you know, the morning came because there was just a lot of stress in certain days. And so baking was my therapy and that was what I felt a lot of relief um, in and then started a little home business and mostly for friends and family and it started to spread around but fast track that into intersecting with Jeff and leaving a board going hey these kids need jobs and I was now not able to fulfill cookie orders and there was something in that mix that just started to say hey we could probably train the kids to bake I don't know that every kid coming through Jeff wants to be a baker, right. but it would be something that's an easy trade that would be transferable to the food supply and the food industry. And that's where we know a lot of entry-level positions are. Yeah. And that's where we started. <laughs> that's uh, It's interesting um, that the the baking and, and, and using Sweet Lala's as a job training, mm-hmm. if you will, as a, is a, almost like a transition. And it's one of those... It sounds like it's one of those careers that you could make it a career, right? All the way up to the white hat yeah, chef level, yeah. or it's just um, getting back into sort of—I don't know if the normal world mm-hmm. is a good word because I know a lot of folks that have been through trauma, their their world is turned upside down, right? And so, sort of getting healing enough to get back and be able to function. A lot of the mm-hmm. same things you went through. Right. Um, when you think about um, like the kids at, in GIF, now they're they're pretty young, aren't they? Right. Yeah. They can be as young as 12. Uh, the, the model has shifted through the years. It's been um, neat to see that they finally reincorporated. Uh, Mars was the first offender program and it incorporated in um, a couple of years ago with GIF. So now instead of three or more offenses, when I came in right. to that space, they're working with younger kids who have one offense because obviously that's where we need to start. If you right. have one offense, we need to dig into that. And Yeah, I think that the reality for what the work is for kids in trauma and the way that the job support, none of the kids that we brought into the kitchen had had probably their first job yet. And so we felt like we could create a training ground that would say, here are the expectations of 
what you will be required to do if you get a job. And so they were employed by me and they were trained you know, on site. Right. But GIF was a familiar ground already. It felt mm-hmm. and most kids who graduate from GIF, um, most of the experience would say they felt like they had family now because the yeah. counselors are like father figures. So we knew that if we could create that space and that was a big reason we rented the kitchen was because now you're not going off site. You've already got one foot right. in the door with kids mm-hmm. and it felt like a natural extension of a program, but Jeff wasn't in the place to fundraise for that. So that's where kind of our family business model took over. We said, Hey, we'll take on the risk. We'll fund the work of the food manager who we hired at the time that was also cooking dinners and meals for the boys. So she mm-hmm. had a relationship, Cheryl did, and Jeff d- did not need someone full time. So the beauty of our partnership was we paid for her part-time position to bake cookies and train while Jeff continued to pay for her meals um, for the boys. And so it was real easy. A kid could come through the Jeff program see us making cookies, be, you know, one month ready to graduate and be like, Hey, what are you doing over there? And then we're like, well, do you want to get a paycheck when you get out of this program? So you could dangle that and you could get your first paycheck through Sweet Lala's, which was, mm-hmm. it was a beautiful partnership when it launched. Um, I think the only thing that I wish we could have done more of is it, I wish it could have been more full time because we were baking to order. So, and we were a brand new business. So we would only bake if we had orders and we didn't have enough work every week, all year round for some of the boys to really catch on to what we were doing. So we were proud to say after four years, about 120 kids were employed by us, came through and were trained. But when you look at a success rate, we didn't track where kids went or if they went on to food industries. And so there were some parts and parcels of it. Now, having been in the nonprofit space, yeah. I wish we'd done some better record keeping <laughs> to really Sometimes understand. Sometimes you look back and you, you hope you learn, right? It's right. interesting talking about uh, giving the boys a path out of of their past, if you will. And, mm-hmm. and sort of, and even one thing I picked up on was you maybe had the vision for them right. before they did. Yeah. But one thing I'm, I look for a lot is um, ideas or techniques or thoughts that um, cross over geological or cultural boundaries. Mm-hmm. And we've found in Ethiopia, so we work with street kids. So this idea of traumatized children, mm-hmm. um, you have to have a path for them to come out of that. And so when we, when our kids age out is what they call it in Ethiopia, but if they don't have a job, or a, a career, they're going to go right back to the street, right? Sure. Which is only going to get worse the older they get. And so, um, but you also can't expect them to come work at the apple orchard, which is handling more money than they can possibly imagine. Right. Um, and expect them not to steal or not to take, mm-hmm. you know, a, a computer or a coffee cup or whatever. And so coming up with um, reasonable expectations that put them on a path um, has been a challenge for us, but it sounds like y'all kind of, oh, I won't say figured it out, but, but have made some good progress. If you don't mind, if it's not, um, um, like a privacy issue, tell us about one of your favorite boys that worked for you or 
kind of came through that program, if it's possible. Oh, there's several. Or you uh, can tell us about a couple. Yeah, well, I, I'd say, I want to recap. I would say we were successful in the sense that we did something. And I wish that I could define it a little bit more pointedly. And I've struggled with that word success because I think, um, especially in a world with Memphis philanthropy and entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and social entrepreneurship, it's hard work. And you have to understand what you're up against. And if you are doing it for points of success and measurable success, what I'm always worried about, someone's going to change the narrative and right. not really be direct about how hard that work is because you lose funding. And so for me, it was our families to fund. So I wasn't letting any funder down, you know, right. at the end of the day, I knew what it took to put more money into the effort. And that's still how I operate today. I'm realizing that it's just hard to to run a food business. It's hard to run it with a mission model. Mm-hmm. It's hard to rely you know, on income from a customer who has different habits and ways. And that's what we were up against even when we were working out in the GIF facility. Um, with the boys that came through, uh, one in particular, Cornelius, um, worked with us for quite a long time off and on. But what I remember about him is he was in the program, super quiet, super quiet guy. And I would come in, you know, start to work on dough and kind of chit chat with any of the boys that would have a conversation with me. But Cornelius was quiet enough that he didn't want to talk. And then he started kind of hanging around in the cafe area, which was what overlooked our kitchen. And what I loved about him is he shared with me that he liked to do art. So we bought him some art supplies. Mm -hmm. And so one day when I was packaging cookies, he did a little self-portrait of me, you know, while I was packaging cookies. And he couldn't have been more proud to share that talent. And what I took away from that is that most kids want to be noticed. And when you think about what they're doing if they're making wrong choices, they're usually still wanting to be noticed. And if you can put them in places that they can be noticed for even the smallest of good things, maybe they'll want to do more of that good. And so what I loved about that moment is that he came and asked to work for us. It was like we just earned enough trust that, hey, you know what? You belong here and you should not just show up and draw. You could get paid to do some things and walk home with some money if you hang around here for a couple of hours. And he did. He worked for a very long time for me at the bakery. And then he went on to get a couple of different jobs that Jeff helped. Even Jeff helped get him a car and he was working on his wow. driver's license. So, you know, I, I don't know where he is now because once we came over to the new building where we are in our retail space, um, we've lost a little bit of connection with him. And as all stories go, you know, you hear some of the hard knocks that some of the kids have had some setbacks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of what our journey in leaving the GIF space, the heartache you mentioned early on in the start of this, the loss that we experienced out of some kids that we worked really long and hard with um, was heavy, heavy for my heart. And I have a heart wired for you know, gratitude and excitement and enthusiasm. And there was some loss that stripped a little bit of that out in the business. And I knew that if I stayed in that space, I would either have to shut everything down because it was going to be too heavy. And I think, Mm -hmm. you you know, I know myself well enough now as I'm in my mid forties, um, that I've got to have enough balance to say, okay, I'm a wife and I'm a mother and I have a community that defines those parts of me. And if I only let myself be defined by a business that I was trying to get off the ground, that they can't survive together unless you keep them in balance. And I think I was getting a little bit too heavy around the loss because we did have um, four kids die by gang violence. Um, 
And uh, Terrence is one who we knew extremely well, had a big future ahead, but his family wanted him back in his neighborhood looking yeah. after his sister. And some kids came and um, targeted him and killed him. And then uh, we had another die by high-speed high car chase. And it just got to be where we were showing up. It felt like every week learning about another death. Right. It wasn't quite that much time close together, but it felt close enough. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I had to make some emotional shifts in how I was approaching the work. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because um, one of the challenges, I think, in any impact or philanthropic work is the loss. I think you called it the truth of pain, the truth of loss. And um, I've experienced it. And there have been, I can I can remember four or five times specifically, I just wanted to throw the towel in and said, I can't just, I can't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's taken, you know, 10 years in Ethiopia to, to help some street kids. And you know, the first ones that, that we worked with are gone, right? right? They're gone. And statistically, um, it doesn't take hard math to figure out what happened. And that, you know, the interesting thing too, the tragic thing is even in the United States of America, one of the most wealthy and developed countries in the history of the world, we have that kind of stuff going on. Um, so, there seems to be this uh, intersection of faith and work mm-hmm. works, right? right? Um, maybe just take sixty seconds and talk about how you wrestled through that—that um, that, the idea of balance. Mm-hmm. But you were, we see. So I think you and I both talked about this before. You see people that they can't take it, so they they step away, right? And then no, then then they can't help anyone. How, how did you work through that? Yeah. I think I am wired to be thinking about others. I'm wired to, so I, I, the first answer is to understand yourself. I think mm-hmm. the best gift you can give yourself is to spend some time really understanding what makes you tick and understanding what makes you um, get really burdened. Because if you start to understand that, then you know how to create situations for yourself that you have an exit um, if things feel really heavy. And I think what what happened for me is that I had spent so many years intertwined in the work of GIF that I'd forgotten who I was because I was constantly about the cause. And I was constantly trying to carry their brand into the community. I'd worked this social enterprise now. So wherever I was, GIF was, and the story of juvenile reentry and the story of change and cookies, you know, make change. And it was great until you realize that there wasn't a a true identity for me and my family and what we were trying to do and create and how I wanted to have a legacy of being a mom for my kids. And I had become a community mom. And I think there's a distinction that has to be made in anyone who starts to feel that burnout, that God's working in all of our hearts to do wonderful things. But I had to change my definition of success and that's the hardest because, yeah. you know, especially um, being raised in a family full of success, you know, you want to feel like, oh, financial success is at one measure. And I just have really learned it's not about financial. I, I work really hard because I want to and I want to make changes. But I've realized that if I can make the impact in one or two lives and that was my success for this last, you know, seven to 10 years since we really focused the bakery's efforts in this space, then I need to hang my hat up on that. So I think that's that's the faith journey is to try to really know yourself and understand what your 
measuring your success by. And God doesn't have a big measuring stick. And I think that's something that's been super freeing too, that I, I, I've got to be good for the day because that's the only thing that Mm -hmm. we're really guaranteed. And so if I'm draining myself and draining myself, and then I'm really no good in a lot of spaces. And I think that was the other thing that I chose um, very deliberately with my husband. We were working too fast and too hard in a lot of different directions as a family, our own little family of five. And we started to take that time back and everybody will take your time. People right. will you know, ask for you to join boards or ask for you to put insights in. And what I found is that I really need to remember the season of life that I'm in. And I chose to have children, so I need to be there for them and right. not farm that out to everybody else under the sun. And it was a big part of change for me to start thinking, what's my plate full with? Yeah. And I get to put what's on my plate today. Did you, get, did you feel like you got some pushback on that or once you made that decision you're going to take your time back and do what you and Tommy were put on planet earth to do. Did you, did you feel like, well, maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. I actually, I feel like the freedom and really managing where I want to put my time has been such a gift in all of the places I put it now. I I realize now how distracted I was in Mm -hmm. either a conversation or at a board meeting because I was constantly planning for the future or juggling this, you know, decision and trying to help them navigate. And when I didn't have that many things going on, it starts to put the right value on where am I going to place this time and where is my value best spent? And so to me, that felt freeing. I I don't devalue where I was putting my time. I just remember thinking, wow, that's not as big of a deal as I thought it was when I was in the moment of those conversations. So when you take those few, it feels like you can't walk away, right? Right. It feels too hard. Everyone needs your attention. You've got to, yeah, you've got to be there. But when you actually realize it's not about you (laughs) and the, um, the humility kicks in that, you know, the foundation ran without me, you know, they didn't need, I mean, it was great to be as a part of my family's work to be there and to help them organize strategic giving. And it was, I remember so heavy to think about walking away, but in the end, when I did, it still runs, you know, things are going great. (laughs) Maybe even better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that you just, sometimes we just get in our own way because we won't move, you know, and I think that's been a real gift for my family that they, they get the more present me and I feel very connected to the things and the choices that I'm making. That's great. That's fantastic. Let's zoom out because we've been talking about a lot of heavy stuff. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, your grandfather. You mentioned your grandmother mm-hmm. and her influence, um, but talk about your grandfather and his influence on your life, um, having been able to watch him up close yeah. for a really long time. Well, that the best gift that my grandfather gave me was that I had no idea what he had accomplished in his life. Mm-hmm. I, you know, certainly um, young enough and in college. Uh, when I started to pay a little bit closer attention that, oh, we are a part of a family that's bigger than I realized, right. you know, in terms of where we connect into the Memphis community. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was lucky enough to have just a friendship with my grandparents. They were modeling um, an amazing marriage that was about him traveling and being away, but my grandmother keeping um, the family connected. 
And so she certainly had, I would say, a more traditional role because she was doing so much in the kitchen and making sure we felt connected around food. But she was a lot stronger, even now as I look back, that the way she kept us connected Mm -hmm. and the way she demanded time and, you know, not in a in an angry way, but just like an intentional, I'm here for you regardless if you show up. And I think that was a very powerful message that we got. And what that did for my grandfather, it allowed him to go be bold in his risks because he never had to worry that she wasn't going to be there when he came back home. Right. And I can't imagine how hard. I think especially now they had five kids. I have three. You know, they um, he was traveling and he was betting way bigger bets, you know, to try to see <laughs> um, if some of these business deals would stick. And and he brought his um, children along, you know, as they got older into the family business. And so I can't imagine what some of the tensions might have been. Right. But I remember I only walked away with just the love pouring out. So as I've become an adult, I've learned that there were family tensions and that sure. there were moments. And you think how I now have to handle my own family tensions, that family can still have a hard moment, but you don't have to separate because of it. And right. so you can have civil discourse or civil differences, but family tries to do what we can to stay together. So I think the gift that my grandfather gave me was that he never had an attitude about who he was. And mm-hmm. most people didn't know who he was. And so I think that humility that he brought to the table every time we were around anyone, we never knew who was important. <laughs> if we were being sure. introduced to somebody, right? we all you know sit at the table and eat together. Uh-huh. And And so I love that because it's really served me well going into the spaces when I worked with youth villages or working in college ministry that every one of us are the same. And Mm -hmm. if you really take the biblical approach and the spiritual approach, we don't have titles and we shouldn't. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that was a great um, gift that he gave his children that they passed on to us that we're all people and we're all making mistakes, but we all should be able to come back around and kind of navigate it together. It's interesting the influence that your grandmother and grandfather had on Memphis, across the Mm. country, but certainly on Memphis, even in my own life growing up, uh, and I didn't realize it, but my dad worked at Holiday Press, and I remember going, and some of my best memories are connected to that company. Um, I remember going having lunch with him. I remember fishing on his lunch break at at a conference center a long time ago. Um, And... One of the, the things that I just think is amazing about the family is that idea that everybody's, nobody's more special than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, because having known a, a fair number of the, what is now like 80. Yeah, I, I need to do the now. count, but we're but over 80 for sure. They're all pretty much like that, which <laughs> yeah. is amazing. Um, yeah. And so uh, you can, you can, I guess you can sort of see his impact and your your mm-hmm. grandmother's impact through there. Uh, I did a little bit of research okay. on your grandfather just because I was kind of curious. Yeah, amazing what you can find on Google. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna quiz you, on okay. your grandfather. What town in northeastern Arkansas was he born in? Osceola. Wow, that's really good. <laughs> the only reason that stuck out to me is my dad's from Osceola. Oh, how great! Um, yeah. So here's question number two: What other significant American was from o- Osceola, Arkansas? Mm. See, mm-hmm. most people don't know this. For, for those of knee. you that are listening, um, Osceola, Arkansas is a tiny town, uh, barely a blip on the map. And uh, and so very few people actually yeah. know where that is. Um, I just grew up going there most Sunday afternoons and uh, playing on the levee. My grandmother's house backed <laughs> up to the levee. Um, the Ollendorf family, okay. back in the early 1900s, um, created, invented um, power 
um, hay balers. They're in the, um, you can Google this, I promise you. It's true. (laughs) Uh, They're in the agricultural, U.S. Agricultural Hall of Fame. Wow. Um, Now, do you know the other famous Memphian? This is kind of a local question. Sorry, I know this is going all over the world. No, no. There's one more famous Memphian from Osceola, Arkansas. Do you get to call yourself a Memphian if you're born outside of Memphis? <laughs> That's kidding. a good question. <laughs> See, your grandfather, as I understood, I was maybe a baby when yeah, he, he was moved a to baby. Memphis. His um, father died, which they think of Lou Gehrig's disease. It oh, was wow. not really. Um, known near yeah. then at the time, but that's what they believe he possibly died of. Wow. So the other famous Memphian is Harold Cry. Okay. Uh, went to high, and the only reason I know this, he went to high school with my dad. <laughs> so um, now your grandfather also mm-hmm. had one of my favorite quotes in the world that's on the wall at Sweet Lala's. Oh. What would that be related to ice cream? A I day without ice cream is a day without love. That's the one my grandfather loved, and we carried soft serve for the longest in the store as a result. <laughs> and so I use that to eat more ice cream. Absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, the um, the influence of your family is is um, has been fun to watch as a Memphian, especially all the things that are connected to our, our history. And it's been fun to get to know you and hear some of the more personal stories sure, about thank them. You. Let's, uh, before we wrap up, I'm going to zoom out again. You've been working in impact and philanthropy for a long time and way up close and also from a sort of 40,000-foot funding um, perspective. What are some things in your mind that the philanthropic world um, needs to make some major changes on? And um, yeah. Ooh, that's a charged question. (laughs) Um, This is where your candor is always fun. Yeah. So I, I, again, I'm going to just bring it back down to coming around the table. And if I go back to the, to the moment that Terry said to me that I sat down in her couch, I think where we have, we have come to a place where you can, start a foundation or a donor advised fund and you can do it in a space that is disconnected from community and I think all of the right right intentions are in place to try to move the needle you know whatever that looks like for your family but I think if you essentially build your world with all of the same people who think like you who are raised like you who um, dress like you then your philanthropy will be very limited in its ability to impact people and I think the best gift I gave myself my parents gave to me I should say was the gift of education so that I could go and be in a space um, at the college level to really because that was the first time if you know my journey was I was raised in a private school in Memphis, and so we had some differences being expressed in my private school, but not a lot, right. and I was still in the same community. So college was the first time I was really like, wow, there are a lot of different people in this world that have different beliefs and opinions, and you'd have these civil discourse you know, conversations um, in our classes. So when I brought that back to Memphis and took the job for Youth Villages, to me, I wish that everyone could take a month at Youth Villages as a volunteer, mm-hmm. shameless plug, to put some time in with people who are very different from your perspective so that you can learn what it might be like a day in the life of someone else. And you can take that as far as you want to go. You can get real stretched or you can stay still a little bit comfortable. But I think 
the myriad of experiences that I had with people Mm -hmm. allowed me to think about philanthropy and helping one on one. And I, I, I love the work. I always shout out Teach for America from when I first learned uh-huh. about it. I was a traditional student, so I knew from a very early age I wanted to be a teacher. So I went to Vanderbilt because it had a great teaching education program. But it was mind-blowing to me that they created a model to bring so many talented students into the field of teaching. So we need big thinkers. We need right. big efforts like that. But I think for what I would say about Memphis philanthropy – is it feels still institutionalized Mm -hmm. um, and it feels still that there are people who make decisions at tables that don't really understand um, all of the things that are taking place that, you know, create the situation for certain families. And so I wish there could be a better blend of that. And I think having more home chats, you know, would be a start to where you have a chance even a couple times a year to sit with a family or two that have hit some hard times and then help go change that story. You know, if you can be a part of that, but. And take some food, right? Right. Yeah. Take some sweet lalas with you. (laughs) So kind of as, as a recap of that, because I, it's making me think, um, I think what I'm hearing you say is, Go sit on somebody's couch and listen. Yeah. Get it get in their world. Yeah. Um, whether it's at St. Jude with the kids or at youth villages or GIF. Just yeah. go sit in that world and observe. And the other thing that I I do want to say and make mention of that is probably not um something that everyone wants to hear, but church to me should be way more open in mm-hmm. open places and spaces. And I think uh, I was lucky enough to be a part of a church family growing up. And my kids, um, sadly, under my leadership, haven't had the same experience because we've right. you know, gotten into being able to do online church now with mm-hmm. COVID. Um, but what I found about the bakery is, you know, and I prayed over that space a lot before it came to life and people came in there. And I just remember thinking, you know, use this space in a meaningful way. And I think what I like about what I can do at my little shop is it can feel like church on some days. You know, we don't know what people are walking in with, and I call them kind of counter moments. There's some people who walk in with real heaviness, um, and it's, you know, maybe in an attitude or something that's being thrown around and Honest to goodness, if you come around the counter and you just ask, well, what is it that you're really after? What is it that you need? You start to see someone melt a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we're privy to these beautiful moments of widows who are just coming in to get their chocolate fix because their husband loved chocolate. Or you're coming in wow. because someone wants to remember their child they buried. And we had a lady come in who had had a child die of an addiction. And we just sat for a few minutes and talked about that. And she was trying to figure out what do you give all these people who've come around her home to help her support her in her grief. I didn't realize that part about the bakery. You think about the celebrations, you think about all the good and you think about the happy moments in which we built a place to feel happy. But there's a lot of sadness that walks through the doors. And I have really... I hope my team feels this way too. We've really tried to say, look for those moments where you can maybe be that one moment for that person who didn't have a great day and we just need to make it better, whatever we can do to make it right. That's well put. That's really well put. Well, we're going to wrap up. And when we, when I've closed these interviews in the past, I've always liked asking interesting people three questions. And that's how you know you're interesting. If that's I ask right. You these three questions. <laughs> so since you're officially interesting, I'm going to ask you one quote, one book, and one person. Okay. So, what is 
one quote if you could share with us today? Maybe something you read yesterday, maybe something it's that just is always with you. What's one quote you would leave with? It's actually what we put in the store, and we stumbled on it, but it sits on the back wall. You can never have too much happy. Mm-hmm. And I know happy and joy are different, but I do love that to get through a day, you got to have happy. And I love that. That's one that's really important to me. Good. All right. Um, one book. This one's tough because I, I know, know you're because I just want to say the Bible, right? right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have not read in book. such a long while. It's been um, it's been hard. Uh, I'll, well, I'll say the one book that I um, remember as a little kid that I think has shaped my life is Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And it was when I read it, I think, in fourth grade. And yeah. it was um, a novel about race and or fiction I guess about race and um, all the complications around that but it really stuck with me and I think helped mold me into who I am roll of thunder roll of thunder hear my cry all right I'm just stoked to get off the New York Times bestseller. I'm going to go look (laughs) that one up. I don't think you'll find it there but it was in (laughs) you know the honorable mentions I'm sure yeah yeah (laughs) that's amazing um one person who significantly influenced you over your lifetime can't be Tommy. I know, and it can't be family, right? Because there's so many people. Um, I'm lucky to have so many family members that are racing through my brain right now. That is special. I will say um, probably my best friend, Aggie, has been the most um, pivotal person in my life because of who she is and how she has taken on her life challenges and shared her life with me and helped be a friend um, when it's hard sometimes and yeah. you're not seeing eye to eye. We we see the world very differently, but I absolutely love to get around the table with her. So. That's awesome. That was really good to hear that you don't, I love, this has been a um, uh, sort of a, a line throughout your conversation. You don't have to agree with everybody. Right. right? I think it's important. We've got to do more of that right now uh-huh. to really be able to disagree in all the best ways, because mm-hmm. I think um, all of us have different experiences that have brought us to where we think, and then someone might be able to change your opinion, and someone might not, and I right. think that both of those are okay. You can still have a whole lot of happy, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you <laughs> you never end the, too much end of the day, never too much sugar and a whole lot of happy. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, if anybody wants to learn more about some of the work that you're doing or Sweet Lala's, where's a good place for them to go and find it on the internet? Yeah, well, our website tells us about the bakery, but if you want to just reach out to me, you can find us through hello at sweetlalas.com, and I'm happy to answer questions or dive in a little bit deeper if somebody wanted more information. Good deal, good deal. Well, there you have it, uh, Lauren Young, Sweet Lala's Memphis. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Um, thanks for being a leader in the impact field and a catalyst. And Liz and I really appreciate you personally for all that you and your family have done around Memphis. Um, I would say also that edgillantine.com is also a great resource for impact articles, white papers, website links, those sorts of things. You can get a copy of the book if you'd like, Journey to Impact. It's printed or on any digital platform, any major digital platform. You can get that at the website at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. And also this podcast, and there's other interviews and other podcasts, um, you, can, you can do a search for that on your iPhone or wherever. You can find links to Sweet Lala's Bakery as well as other things they discussed in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find out about Journey to Impact. Until next time, embrace build 
act. 